2: Hey, guys, it's Sean, and I'm here to introduce you to another bonus episode of Real Blend, an interview with actor David Morse. Uh, As you guys have seen over the years, we have every once in a while been able to sit down with an actor or a director who's coming back around for a a legacy project because it's coming to DVD. And Warner Brothers reached out to us to say that the Green Mile uh, was coming to 4K for the very first time. And David Morse, one of the co-stars of the film, was going to sit down and do some press. So, of course, we grabbed him for the show because not only is he terrific Uh, in the Green Mile opposite Tom Hanks and uh, the late Michael Clark Duncan, who's fantastic in this. Uh, But David Morse has a great, rich history with Stephen King and doing a few other of his adaptations, both for television and for film, and also an audiobook reading of one of the best Stephen King books out there, Revival. So uh, we sat down with David Morse, went over not only uh, his work with Stephen King, but other really important films in his career, including The Rock. You knew that we had to bring up The Rock uh, and talk about his work with Michael Bay. So Without further ado, let's get right to our bonus episode with David Morris talking about specifically The Green Mile, but also a lot of the highlights of his prolific acting career.
3: Well, thank you. I can see I'm clearly outnumbered. And we'll <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right. I have a strange question um, because Green Mile went on to become a nominee for Best Picture, and I'm just curious: when you're working on a film, uh, if you realize that the movie that you're working on has the potential uh to maybe earn a best picture nomination
3: i don't think you always do um i've had you know been in a couple anyway i you know this one i have to honestly say i I, we knew from the beginning of the potential it 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 just had a great story it had a great script frank had done shawshank you you knew that you had something that a lot of people want to be a part of um and you know tom wasn't on board when i was there i knew there they were in discussions with him. And when he came on board, um, it, it, you knew this was just going to go to another level. We'd um, seen the work that Frank had done, we knew what he could do. So there was the potential, the potential to screw it up always. But yeah. um, fortunately, that did not happen. Mm.
4: Um, David, I, I, I'm not blowing smoke when I say this, whenever people ask me, what's your go to cry movie, I always say green mile and specifically the, the execution of John Coffey. I, I genuinely, I could not put it on my TV right now and not get tears in my eyes. Can you take me back to the day when you guys shot that? Uh it, yeah, I know that, that, that filming movies, it's a lot of start, stop. It's a lot of waiting around. It's a lot of, you know, get this light here and that light there. But do you still feel those kind of emotions that, that we end up feeling when we see the final product?
3: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time we do that, that scene, we'd already lived together a lot. We'd been, we'd been through a lot together as actors and as those characters um, and, you know, and, and the lights and all that stuff that, that it just all kind of disappears.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, that's part of movie making. It's, you know, you know, you don't. unless something is really messing up, you don't pay attention to it all a lot. Um, but when we get in that room together, we've already built a world together, an emotional world together. Um, so that that whatever you felt there and you we were feeling when we did it. Um, it, it was um, it was incredibly moving.
5: You know, David, this is, a, a, a as as Sean mentioned, a film podcast. So a lot of our listeners are very interested in just filmmaking in general, how films are made, the behind the scenes aspect of it. I spoke to you earlier in our TV interview briefly about this, but I wanted to like kind of like break down maybe a, a scene to kind of play it out, how it happened. I know we were talking about the height difference earlier and you're not that much. Michael Clark Duncan is not that much taller than you are. Um, and I know it was really interesting how like Darabont used certain tricks or, or, or boxes in order to make uh, Michael's uh, presence so massive and everybody else seem uh, to be looking up at him. So maybe like the first scene that we that we when he's introduced, when he comes into the prison and everybody's, you know, looking and seeing what he's doing, um, that's a pretty good scene, I think, to break down in terms of like height difference and how that was shot. But could you talk about maybe like the boxes you were stepping over, how you guys were achieving that that massive height difference?
3: Yeah, well, when you watch it in the movie, the, the first thing you see was something we shot late in the movie, where that that the the, the van arrives or that truck arrives with coffee oh, yeah. in the back, um, and and you see the weight of him in there when the, the truck kind of bounces, or whatever it is, when, yeah. you know, you you know somebody big is is coming, um, and you see us looking through the windows. It's like holy crap what is this <laughs> um so you know you know so it's really building up to you know what's going to come through that door and and i think there's a moment between you know paul with tom tom and i it's like get ready boss and he's, like, oh, and he's thinking about his you know his piss or something um and then when he walks through the door uh you know michael on his own obviously was just an amazing presence um but but it was the first time he walked through and we had the boxes there. Um, so we had to, you know, kind of negotiate that for the first time. How are we going to do this as actors, ignore those things? You know, it, because those are down below our feet. We can't be looking at him. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we really have to be looking up at him or our attention is somewhere else and, and um, find our way around this world, wherever he's walking. Um, you know, we kind of got used to that, but but you can't really totally get used to it. <laughs> Uh, but you didn't have to imagine too much with michael because he really was big he was just bigger when he was on those boxes weren't you
5: crouching down you said in some scenes like in some shots the darabont would have you like bend down a bit and kind of look up
3: yeah there were some scenes where he couldn't i think it was we were in um i'm trying to remember which scene it was in Um, but all of us were there and they couldn't hide the boxes in that one, but because we had to walk and and somehow we had to be all you know scooting down. Yeah, all of you tried to do that. Um, yeah, I don't know how I would do that. Be normal while you're doing that, yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, one of the things I love that that Frank Darabont tends to do is to rely on on actual locations, whether it was for Shawshank or and then you guys shooting at the Tennessee State Prison. Um, and uh, so I, I was hoping you'd tell us how much was shot in in the prison, how much and how that as a location uh, just added to the the atmosphere and the ambiance. And it, it strikes me as people tell me all the time uh, if they're in Ohio that they go visit the Shawshank prison. And I think that's a weird thing to go visit because it's a place I wouldn't want to go to. It reminds me of. Uh, Sean Connery's line from your other film, The Rock, when he's told that Alcatraz is a tourist attraction in this
3: place. Yeah. 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 No, you know, honestly, almost it was almost all exteriors there. Everything was done uh, on the sets in, in Los Angeles. It was such a relief to go there, to get off of that green mile, because that really it was almost the only thing I saw, most of us saw the entire time was that, 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 that set. Um, so when we get to spend a month out there doing the location, so it's actually one scene when that escape happens, uh, and you see in the distance all of us running with um, with Michael Clark Duncan. They yeah. hired short people <laughs> to run with um, stand-ins oh. to run with Michael.
0: Did wow, really? Oh, that's really?
3: Funny. Yeah. So we weren't there. You saw the silhouettes. I I have to say I was a little disappointed in my stand-in. Um, I, I didn't his
2: performance you didn't like his performance
3: <laughs> yeah don't don't let him know i said that. <laughs> he's actually he a big listen.
5: listener of the show yeah 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 <laughs> we, we, we we have him here for a fan question hold on one second
4: <laughs> um so david we we spoke earlier about uh the the day that stephen king was on set but i've, I've always been curious though like what kind because he's he's arguably the most popular author in America, maybe in the world right now, what kind of access you have to him before he comes to a set visit? Like, do you get the ability to reach out to him and ask questions? No, no.
3: Well, maybe if we wanted to call him, we could do that. Mm -hmm. I, I, and no, that's never happened. Mm -hmm. I would just want to talk to him to talk to him because he's such a fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, his it, it's all there in his stories. It's not really like you need to do that. When I, when I did the Langoliers, it, which was the first thing I did of his, I, um, I was playing an airplane, you know, I had to fly an airplane, a, a big jet. And I, uh, I, I got to spend time with the guys who flew the real jet. And mm-hmm. I rode, learned how to fly it in this big L-1011. And I got to taxi around the runway with them and all of that. Um... So that's a kind of research that I don't think Stephen could really help with. Sure. And, and I don't really know what it would be on the green mile that he would be helpful with either. Because he's, I think he would always only say, listen, I put it on the page. It's there. Mm. Um, mm. You know, go to it.
5: You know, David, one of the things that I'm a, a big fan of, obviously, I think a lot of people are are film scores. And and what I find interesting about film scores is when an actor is making a movie, generally speaking, unless unless the filmmaker is playing some of the music on set, which is rare, or they're playing a soundtrack on set. Generally, a score is written later in production, post-production, depending on the director. Um I'm curious for you what it's like emotionally to see your performances set to score, especially Thomas Newman, because he's one of the greatest composers of all time. And you do all the work. You're you're there on the day. You see the final product put together together. Score elevates everything. It it enhances every aspect of a film, whether it's there or not there. No score can sometimes do the same thing. So I wonder for you emotionally, what's it like to watch your performance in Green Mile with Thomas's score playing? Like was you remember the first time you heard it?
3: Um I you know, no offense to him, but I don't I don't remember it a lot, which is probably a good thing because mm. I've had the opposite experience where I've done a movie, a couple of movies where I heard a preliminary score. You know, this is what I like to sound like, uh, these songs. And I thought, oh, God, this is amazing. This is going to be great. And then the composer got there, and I'm like, wow. He didn't get to this movie at all. Oh, um, or, or he put in, instead of acoustic instruments, he puts in electronic instruments, and you hear the electronics. And it's, it just doesn't work with the emotion of the movie to, to hear that. Uh, and it's so disappointing to it clashes with the movie and what you're trying to do and and the, and the other one they disappear or or there's so much a part of the emotion but mm. i think those are the the best scores mm. and there's other movies that i've seen where i think the score is brilliant but all i'm doing is thinking oh the score is brilliant um, oh, oh this this is brilliant um, but i'm not you know i'm it's i'm out of the movie because i'm
2: thinking, not in it i'm not in it that's really interesting um, David, you're no stranger to Stephen King adaptations, obviously. Um, <laughs> little bit two part, yeah. I was wondering if you if you actively seek them out, or if they're just they happen to be projects that come your way. Um, and and also if you just have any insight into, we went through a stretch where like Stephen King adaptations were red hot and they were hitting the theater every couple of months, and then it seems like. Hollywood shied away from them and now they're coming back around in different formats, whether it be longer form television and people are figuring out how to get back into his work. I was wondering if you had any insight as to to why we slowed down on the adaptation. I don't know if I could say that other than everything seems to slow
3: down except for the Marvel comics world. Um, You know, all those movies that I did like The Negotiator. um, Yes. You know, it's those were middle budget kind of movies Mm. Uh, and they started crashing. Uh, it was, uh, and, and the only thing that seemed to survive and barely were the independent movies where nobody made any money, money on them or the big, big budget movies. No. Uh, and I didn't, I, you know, I, I think the biggest budget movie I did was World War Z, which was, uh, you know, out of this world and in terms of production. Um, but I, I don't really know the answer to that. I, you know, Stephen. The the movies that I really was attracted to of his were you felt the heart in them you know you there were human beings in them Uh, you know Green Mile's obvious one or uh, Stand by Me and Hearts in Atlantis Uh, I love those and and it's a peek into Stephen and sometimes it's almost a little disappointing when he goes to the Stephen King stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, they're so totally in the world. Um, with those characters and they go okay here we go and you know go for the stephen king ride Mm -hmm. and it's almost like being taken out of it a little bit because Mm -hmm. it's like the music you're you're seeing stephen king or you're hearing that music instead of totally being in there that's interesting. I never thought of it that yeah, way.
5: People are always like shocked to hear that Shawshank is a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, exactly. people are like, I know exactly what you're saying. I know exactly. There, what you're there's saying. that
4: famous story. I don't know if you've read on writing where a woman approached him at the grocery store and said, you know, just so you know, I know who you are. And I really wish you would write more stuff like that Shawshank Redemption. And he tried to say, ma'am, I did. I did write. I don't, I don't think she believed him. I think she walked away. Um, you know, David, when it comes to. Stephen King monsters, you know, I think our mind goes to, I don't know, Jack Torrance or, or Pennywise or uh, Cujo. Cujo. Um, but I honestly think that Percy Whitmore might be one of the most terrifying monsters he's ever written. I'm Ooh. just curious what your thoughts are in terms of Percy and the pantheon of of Stephen King evil that we've seen and acting up as like I, I watched that movie and I actually want to strangle the man. And so when you're in that moment, how are you obviously acting, but like how the, the sort of emotions that that character made you feel on set?
3: No, I actually wanted to strangle the man, <laughs> um, you know, and, but that's a tribute to Doug Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, it's a great role, mm-hmm. you know, Stephen and, and, and Frank, um, created just as you say, one of the, the, the most awful villains in a movie, mm-hmm. um, and, but part of what made him so awful, awful uh, besides Doug's great performance, was our investment in coffee, our yes. investment in Mr. Jingles. Um, what we, you know, where our hearts were in the movie. So when he did those things, they were really bad. Mm. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by
6: Marvel Strike Force. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.
5: Uh, David, one of the things that I find really interesting, and this is something I'm sure you've talked about before, but the mice are such a massive part of the story. Um, And there's there's such an interesting aspect to that, because directing that must have been insane. Like, I can't imagine like how they even like Darabont even played with that. I'm assuming that I know I read there were like real mice and then they would do laser pointers at some point. Um, Can you talk about like what that process was like? What, What was the craziest thing you had to do for any of the mice sequences? Because I don't think people realize how hard those scenes probably were to film.
3: Well, first of all, Frank was smart. He gave directing those to somebody else to do. Um, so there was there was always a second unit on the set. You know, we'd have to be quiet for oh, it's Mr. Jingle scene. Oh, he's over here We're shooting Mr. Jingle. Okay, everybody, we stand around while they shoot the little Mr. Jingles on the floor doing the stuff. The second unit, you know? and Frank would go over and look at the monitor and check things out. But he wasn't directing those. It would it just he would have spent all his time directing those things um those mice were great i give those mice all the credit in the world um but they're animals
2: (laughs) and
0: it's a lot of work
5: what so was was the laser pointer thing true what like was that one of the ways that you had your eye lines like how that's so cool yes that was for us that
3: yeah it absolutely was yeah um Mm -hmm. and i think there was there was probably you know the scene where he comes out the first time and he comes all the Mm -hmm. way down and i think we were actually there and got to see that um but when we when they actually shot our our side of it when they turned around and looked at us obviously there's no mice there uh we got to watch it and got that some kind of experience of seeing the mouse really do this but we had our little yeah a little laser pointer and so we're all <laughs> in the same place and, and being good actors
5: it's like a cat, <laughs> like a cat. Cats love laser pointers like, hey, I'm
3: surprised that Tom Hanks didn't go after it
2: himself. <laughs> I'm with it. Uh, David, you've been blessed to work, you know, consistently for for years and, and work with some some of the most interesting directors as well, too. Um, and, you know, quite often very closely back to back. And the transition that fascinates me with Green Mile is going from this to Dancer in the Dark, um, which is such an incredible film. And I would assume Lars von Trier is a a different ride for an actor. How much time was in between each of those projects? Did you go right from one to the other or was there some distance? And is it hard to, like, compartmentalize what you just did on Green Mile and then dive into that world?
3: You know, during those
2: years, I
3: was really going full out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was not a lot of time. My my kids were young. Our kids, my kids were young. She was basically a single mother during those years. I was gone up to nine months out of the year, every year,
1: mm-hmm. um, wow. which was
3: lucky, but it takes a toll. You know, it's hard on a family. Uh, the transition, because i had done so much theater, um, i had done a lot of different characters. The transition wasn't as hard as you would imagine. Mm-hmm. The personalities, um, you know, there's always an adjustment. Some people make it harder than others. To, uh, to work with them. Lars was not one of them. Lars had a reputation. And I made a joke to him about this kind of when I, when I uh, on my last day of shooting and it was over. And I thanked, thanked Lars the tyrant for asking me to be in this movie because he was anything but a tyrant. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to Bjork talk about it, you would think he was the worst person in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, Bjork... Um, she had been a star most of her life since she was 13 years old, controlled her whole world, you know, controlled her music, controlled everything. And here she was really for the first time having someone. Being controlled. Being, mm-hmm. That's right. Giving her directions. It was hard, hard for her. Mm. But she was a phenomenal person to be an actor with because her, her commitment to that character was so complete. And, it, and it's like being with Michael Clark Duncan. They're so alive. Uh, They are who they are, and it makes you alive. And Mm -hmm. Lars, I don't know if you want to hear all of this, but... um, We we very much do. This is our show. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, with, with, with Frank, he... And his, the people who worked with him before warned us about this. And he said, listen, when, when Frank wrote this, he knew, he struggled over every comma in the script. He knows everything that's in the script. It's all in his head. He knows the colors in this movie. Um, basically, you're helping him to fulfill what he sees in his head. Mm-hmm. And, and when you go with that, that's fine. Some people have a hard time, you know, harder time with that than others to do that. Once you know what you're doing, you're there to help him create what he has seen in his head. And seen in his head, Lars was the opposite of that. You know, you're doing a scene. He shot his on video, which I hadn't done before. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's two things. There's the there was the hundred cameras that he did for the musical numbers, mm-hmm. where he placed a hundred cameras, hid them all over the place, <laughs> and then the yeah. Wow. Um, and the musical numbers happened through those hundred cameras. But the other scenes, the scenes that were not musical numbers, he was, he was shooting the film. And he had a, um, a, a, an Ikigami, whatever it was, some maybe tell over his shoulder. Uh, this fantastic DP would come in, light the room. Everybody would disappear except for the boom guy. So it was just, um, just Lars with the camera and the boom guy and the actors. And he had a script and you do, you know, I think thinking one scene in particular with uh, with uh, Bjork, we're talking about the money and it's very emotional. And we do it the first time and I'm, I'm weeping and, and, and Lars is, you know, he never stopped shooting. The, the, the thing is just rolling the whole time. He says, no, 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 no. What, what I wrote is shit. It's just shit. It's just shit. Just um, uh, say what your subtext is. Just do it again with your subtext. So you do the scene again and you do it just not with the dialogue, but with the subtext. He says, okay, now just put in this line, put in this line. He never stopped shooting 45 minutes, you know, as much time as he could go, you're doing this over and over again. And it's improvised and different every single time you do it. And right. Right. it was fantastic. Hmm. It was such a great right. work.
2: The difference with digital. I know the film provides, you know, shooting on film provides an aspect, but, but being able to improvise on digital and have that kind of extra time to play is, is invaluable.
3: Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I'm going to tell you these things, but, you know, the closest thing I, ever, I had to happen at, was, uh, well, Homicide, The light from the Street, thats serious Homicide. But there was a TV movie I did called Murder Live where it was based on something that actually happened um, in a reality TV show, daytime TV show. And my character takes over uh, a reality TV talk show. And the way we shot it was, um, and it was a film director who shot it, uh, is, is we literally shot nonstop from commercial break to commercial break. Um, and had a bunch of cameras. So um, it was nonstop. There was no cutting. And it was the same sort of feeling of improvising it's for the whole length of a, of a roll of film. And that was where the commercial breaks were. Oh, that's awesome. Ooh, wow. that is awesome. Very
2: cool.
4: <laughs> David, speaking, speaking of television, you know, a lot of people... Talk about the age of television we're in now, sort of the the, the golden age of TV, and their you know appointment viewing. And we make a point to watch certain stuff, uh, and a lot of people forget that when Stephen King originally published The Green Mile, he published it uh, episodically. I believe it came out in like six different parts. Um, and he's had a couple of adaptations get sort of the TV treatment, and obviously he's written a few pieces for for television as well. Do you think that The Green Mile could work as like a, a limited TV series? Would it if, if they would it be uh, a different animal if it were translated for television?
3: Well, I think if it was done now, it probably would be done exactly like you're saying as a limited series. Um, but you know, it's a th- what is it, three hours and three hours and seventeen minutes, something like mm-hmm. that. And and the critics were really harsh and hard on it when it came out because of the length. Nobody who <laughs> ever watched it complained about it. It was only the critics who complained about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I've I've always thought, and I think now you know, thankfully we can do it, is there are so many of these stories that have suffered because they're trying to cram a whole mm-hmm. novel into two hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. Uh, um, when I did Indian Runner with Sean, he, he wrote one of my favorite scripts I ever read. I couldn't even believe he wrote it when I first read it. It was so beautiful. And he shot that script and had a four-hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it broke his heart that he had to cut out you know, almost two hours of what he wrote. He cut, cut out entire characters. Um, and when we did The Crossing Guard, instead of writing a 120-page script, which is sort of standard, he wrote an 85-page script and knew we were going to improvise a lot of the movie uh, for Crossing Guard. Hmm. Um, and, he, and he may have, who knows, it may have hurt the movie that he didn't do a, a full script, but whatever. Um, yes, yeah, so I think now that probably would be a limited series rather than a feature. So, David,
5: probably the first movie that I remember seeing you in as a kid, uh, it was 1997 I, and I have my ticket for it, which is The Rock. Um, and I, I will never forget my dad and my mom, my brother and I went to this theater to see it. And my dad and, and I remember sitting in the theater and like being blown away by it. I love Michael Bay. Just but what I love about The Rock is outside of Michael Bay's idea of what, like, you know, he's an action filmmaker. That movie had a really interesting emotional core to it. The whole Ed Harris storyline, everything with that, the, his arc, like going from what he wanted to do and then changing his mind. It was so incredibly well-made and not just, not just a a mindless action movie. It was awesome. Um, And I wanted to talk to you about your experience on that set. That was a young Michael Bay. I mean, this is like right after bad boys. And I'm just wondering like what you remember about that filmmaker at that time, your experience on that movie, because it's one of my favorite action movies of all time, but I also feel like it's underrated in terms of its emotional core. I really do. Well, if you really
3: want to know the experience, I, which obviously you do because you're asking. <laughs> um, uh, I met Michael Bay, I auditioned for him. I was doing a play, a one-person play down in La Jolla, and I went up for, for on my day off and I auditioned for him to The Rock. He um, was a really nice guy, uh, and, and, and the role I auditioned for originally was the guy who would be the bad guy who went all the way to the end. Um, and it was still the same character, but my character was the bad guy who... Um, was right there until the end. So I was thrilled to get it. And, and when I went there for the first read-through, uh, Sean Connery came over, a real gentleman, came over, shook my hand and said, hello, Sean Connery. I said, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for introducing yourself. Um, and then I looked at the script, and I wasn't the bad guy anymore. Um, now I was Baxter, who dies at the, you know, 20 pages before the end. I was like, what happened? I was really <laughs> disappointed um, because nobody warned me about it. Um, and but I also had the feeling that you know this this you know we got good actors here. Nicholas has done some really good stuff, but this could stink. This could really stink. And I and I know that he was bringing in um, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer was bringing in like Aaron Sorkin to do a polish on it. it can, all, all the time we're shooting, you know, they bring in Aaron Sorkin to do a week's work on it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Frank was asked to do something. Um, a lot of people did some polishes on that. And over time, that really became a better script. Uh, Mm -hmm. And like you said, you got Ed Harris, um, and Nicholas, who was, um, you know, really doing some good work. Uh, and it was surprising to me how good it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And again, it's sort of, it's the thing about the ensemble. The ensemble was good. Uh, John McGinley, all those, all those, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those soldiers. We had the real Navy SEALs there. We were working with those and they trained us. The Navy SEALs were in the movie. We trained with them. Uh, that scene where they're all shot in the, the, the shell. Oh. It's brutal. Brutal. But,
5: that know, guy falls and it falls down into like, yeah, oh my God.
3: Yeah. Um, but there was an, you know, we were invested. Everybody was invested in it and you could feel it um and michael michael michael's not easy to work with and i think he's probably just gotten harder to work with um and he has a reputation for that Uh, but he he has um he really has a brilliant eye for making movies uh and 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 he did some of the best technical people dp i've ever seen and the dp would set up the shot michael would come in look at the shot and and he would just move the camera a little bit you go wow It was a good shot. That's an amazing shot. Um, (laughs) And that's what Michael has. And it's really something.
5: I I love that movie. Have you, have you watched that recently? Just out of curiosity, have you watched any of your older films? And did you, did you and Michael Clark Duncan ever trade?
4: No. Cause it wasn't, he just off of Armageddon when he did green mile. Oh, that's right. I actually
3: was asked to do Armageddon. I I went in and uh, I auditioned for the role that uh, Billy Bob Thornton did. Oh, wow. The NASA director. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wouldn't have been nice if I got that role. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they, they offered me the role that, um, that, uh, B- Bill did, um, mm-hmm. which was another military guy. I didn't really want to do it. And I, I actually was being offered three movies at exactly the same time. One was the Gnos- negotiator,
5: uh, F- Ar- F- Gary Gray. Oh,
3: yeah, Armageddon. Chicago. and something that Joel Schumacher was doing. One, one of the, uh, um, you know, the lawyer movies, um, I was being offered all three at the same time. And I felt when I wasn't offered, when Michael didn't offer me that, the role that Billy Bob did, I was, man, I was really a little hurt, but I I called him to thank him for offering me. And I got his assistant and I, you know, I said, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for Michael, but you know, I have to go with this other movie, you know, it's, um, you know, for the role. And as I, I could tell his assistant was terrified that, he was going to have to tell Michael the news that it was the wrong way to do it. I um, and apparently, they they got pretty upset. And Jerry Bruckheimer got had got upset with me and thought I had screwed them or something. Um, so I never got off another never movie with those guys.
2: Well, you I love did the okay. negotiator.
5: So he did a great job. You did, you did okay <laughs> with
2: yourself, uh, David? We are out of time, but obviously, we wish we had plenty more time. There's so many more gems in your career that we would love to get into. Mm. But thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, to join us to talk Green Mile and, uh, and to dive into So I would love to talk. I just want to talk Diary of a City Priest. I think that's one of your best roles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> uh, well, you, thank you, you, th- you very much.
3: Well, you three guys are really fun to talk, talk to and I appreciate it. Thanks for having
2: me. We want to thank David Morris for joining us as a guest on real blend as always, you know, we love being able to dive into the the intricacies of how select scenes filmed and him talking about you know the the death of of john Coffey in the green mile and michael clark duncan's performance was truly truly moving uh and i don't think i'm ever going to really look at that at that scene or or the film in general uh the same way without you know now knowing that we've had this chance to to speak with him so thank you david for coming on the show Uh, i want to tease for the real ones who have made it all the way through the interview and stuck around for the, the closing of this video that we have some really exciting things coming joe wright uh, the director of *Atonement*, who has a new film called Cyrano, finally hitting, hitting theaters. Uh, we spoke with him a little bit earlier, and now that full interview is about to run. And I guess now we can review. Uh, we can reveal because uh, it happened. Hashtag it happened. Uh, we're getting Matt Reeves on the show. Matt Reeves uh, is going to join Real Blend for 30 minutes to talk about the Batman, uh, and it is it is every bit as geeky. Uh, as Real Blend fans are hoping that is going to be definitely one we circled on the calendar a long time ago. When Reeves' name was attached to the Batman, we said we have to get him for the show, and we're thrilled that he was be able to stop by. So uh, that's coming up very very soon. If you're here on the YouTube channel, uh, make sure you hit subscribe. Thank you so much. You guys have pushed us over 6,000 subscribers. It means that the word of, uh, of Real Blend is spreading, and you guys are sharing with your film loving fans uh, news about us. Uh, and keep it here locked in on our channel for all the exciting content coming up, including, like I said, Joel Wright talking Cyrano and Matt Reeves talking the Batman.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership.